Several years ago, I was standing in line in a very crowded fast food restaurant at lunchtime. And there in front of me was an elementary age boy, an older elementary age boy, who was pleading and begging with his dad, please, I would like to order, I need permission to order the special sandwich that was on the menu at this restaurant. It was a sandwich that was topped with copious amounts of bacon. I think there was six slices total on this thing, as lo- along with cheese and two patties of meat. And this child also wanted to accompany that sandwich with the side special, which was a generous portion of french fries that were also topped with bacon, grated cheese, and cheese sauce. His dad said no. The boy didn't respond well. Sometimes we desire to eat what we can't and shouldn't have. Has anyone ever ordered anything that remotely resembles what I just described? I actually ordered the burger that he was trying to plead with his dad just to see what it tasted like. I wanted to see what it tasted like. I never ordered it again. I didn't feel well after eating it. You know, I think there's a lesson in this whole entire ideal of uh, this idea of ordering something what you should and can't eat. Before we go there, let's talk about this new series that we're going to be in over the next few weeks. Experience tells us that shared meals serve more than our physical appetites. The business lunch, of course, the birthday dinner, the ice cream party, right? It's more than just the meal itself. It's the gathering of people and the conversation that ensues, the relationships that are built there. And not just experience. Studies actually show that there's a correlation between shared meals and positive outcomes in the development of children. It's the reason why your pediatrician will ask you, how many shared meals does your family have each week? Or at least they should be asking you that question, because they know it's good for the development of that child. But even beyond the benefits to children, gathering around a table or a shared meal, it nourishes our relationships, it refreshes our souls, and it feeds our sense of belonging. And these are all categories that we find in Scripture. So we're not surprised to also learn that we see shared meals playing a prominent role throughout the scriptural or biblical text. Throughout the narrative, we'll see these meals. And the meals invite you and me to a different kind of life. They actually invite us to enjoy and live and to be something more. So today we begin a new series that I've entitled Epic Mealtime. And if you're familiar with the YouTube channel Epic Mealtime, this isn't that. If you go and watch that, you'll realize quickly, this definitely is not that. And at the same time, as we think about those different categories, we recognize that the aforementioned categories that are very positive about shared meals, not today. That's not today's meal. No, today's meal isn't the kind that nourishes our relationships. Check out those curses that we just heard in Genesis chapter 3. It doesn't refresh our soul. In fact, these folks are naked and afraid. And it doesn't feed our sense of belonging. All right, look at all the blame that goes around, let alone the feeling of estrangement that occurs as we see alienation at the end of the text. But it is a meal that you and I oftentimes return to. It's one that we look for in seasons of feast or famine, and it's one that continues like that overly loaded bacon sandwich or iceberg lettuce. It ceases to nourish us. It doesn't accomplish that goal. Zero nourishment. So our story begins with a tree. Okay, let's stop for a second here. 
Maybe it doesn't begin with a tree, but certainly includes a tree as a focal point. And yes, there are multiple trees in the text, but one particular tree comes quickly into view. If we look one chapter earlier from our reading, in Genesis chapter 2, we hear, Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. The generosity of our Creator is on display here with that little short description there. God provides provisions for the human family and all of creation. The human creatures are placed in an abundantly hospitable environment where life can flourish. That's how the setting is set up. That's the world in which the human family is welcomed and placed by our Creator. And not only placed there to live, the human creature is charged with responsibility. We see that in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. So from the beginning, we too work, skillfully tending and faithfully stewarding the environment in which we're placed. We bring in order, and at the same time, we work skillfully in stewarding the environment and pushing back the chaos. In many ways, there's a sense of partnership here with our Creator, though certainly we operate from a subordinate position. But even more, there's a great sense of purpose, something unique to the human calling that differentiates us from life in its myriad of forms. This isn't the calling, what I just described, of the antelope. It's not the calling of the alligator. It's not the calling of the amoeba. Okay, maybe the amoeba. No, not the amoeba. What does the amoeba do? Yeah, some stuff. Someone afterwards is going to tell me what the amoeba does. But connected to this purpose is also a prohibition. All right, connected here is a prohibition. It says in verse 16, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall die. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. That's a hefty consequence. All those other trees, including the tree of life, you can eat. They don't carry that prohibition. But this particular tree does. So you have a life of rich abundance, but you also at the same time do not have a life without limits. That's where creation begins for the human family. There are limits, there are limitations, but there is also great abundance. So why limit access to this particular tree? Why that tree? Why not say, don't eat off the pine tree? Because you probably shouldn't eat off a pine tree. Experience tells me that. Admittedly, knowing good and evil would seem to be desirable and even appropriate, even within the pages of Scripture. So we read the story of King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. Solomon prays, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. What he is praying for is wisdom. And you'll note there the merism of good and evil being paired together, just like it is in our text, where you take two seeming opposites and they represent the totality of a particular arena. So good and evil represent all knowledge, and that would be wisdom in the biblical tradition. And that would be particularly helpful for someone who's serving in the role as king. But what differentiates Solomon's ask from what goes down in our text is a missing ask. Our text doesn't have an ask. Our text pictures the human attempt at self-possessing the divine wisdom and for purely personal aims. 
They want to become like God. But the result is anything but divine. In the 1990s, uh, Bill Moyers hosted a series on PBS entitled Genesis, A Living Conversation. Does anybody remember that series? You ever, didn't you ever see that? It's still available online. One person. There's two of us here. We'll talk about it later. It's still available online and it is definitely worth viewing. What Moyers did is he would gather a diverse panel of folks to gather around the stories in Genesis. And they would have a conversation about these stories. And it was fascinating to see how these world-class thinkers uh, would think about the different stories and what things they would pull out from them that were important to them and their own story. And we came to the question of this particular prohibition here. When they were wrestling with, why would, why would God place a tree there with a prohibition of this sort? These great thinkers who had spent years studying, they came to the same conclusion you and I might arrive at here this morning. Your guess is as good as mine. That's where they landed. Each one had their own thoughts on what was going on in the account. Why would God set before the human creature such a challenge? It's unknown. What we do know, though, is there is a prohibition. We can't know the mind of God unless God reveals that to us. God is bigger than us, far bigger. But we know there's a prohibition, and we know the tree is forbidden, and there's a subsequent violation. Derek Kidner, in his uh, commentary, will observe in this prohibition that as the tree stood prohibited, it presented the alternative to discipleship. Saw this as a way of going towards a life of unfaithfulness. He goes on the right, to be, made, to be self-made, resting one's knowledge, satisfactions, and values from the created world in defiance of the creator. So what the human creature does here, he not only eats what he can't and shouldn't, they are choosing to dine at an altogether different table. The human creature is choosing to eat alone. But in doing so, we disconnect ourselves from the author and sustainer of life. And we choose a way that does not lead to life, but instead paves the road on the journey to what's left. It's the only road left when you're not on the road to life. And that's the road to death. Lord God, of course, warned the human family of this danger. Chapter 2, verse 17, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And they, in turn, expand this to, if you eat or touch it, you shall die, which we hear in verse 3 of chapter, uh, chapter 3. This added layer suggests a certain layer of insulation, that they recognize the danger there, uh, that they see and understand there are consequences that come with violating the prohibition, and so they hedge themselves away from a little bit by not touching it. If you don't touch it, you can't eat it, and so they certainly protect themselves from that. But hedges aren't always the best defense. Something is missing, and that something is hinted at in a conversation. You'll realize that if you read through Genesis 2 and 3, if you thumb through those pages, you'll see that oftentimes the reference is to the Lord God. You'll see the Tetragrammaton is employed there, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And what that is doing is it's translating the Hebrew word for the covenant name for God. And you'll see that only in the Old Testament, certainly because it draws itself from Hebrew. But through chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, you'll see Lord God all throughout the narrative. The Lord God is speaking, the Lord God is commanding, but all of a sudden when we get to the conversation between the serpent and the woman, something drops off. The word Lord drops off from the reference. 
but simply merely at this point a reference to God. God becomes, in the dropping of the covenant name, more distant, less particular, more abstract. God is now seen as one who is not personally known, as you expect with a covenant name, but rather this generic name for God. That's a move, and it's exchanging of the truth of God for whatever you want to put in there. It becomes less of, that person told me to, somewhere out there I heard. When that happens, one can justify just about anything as an offering to serve their pliable, self-made deity. And we can see that begin to take shape in the thinking that happens amongst the human family. At the same time, the, serpent's offer, the serpent here offers a different take on the so-called consequences. Right? God said on that day you'll die. But that's not what the serpent says. It says you will not die, verses 4 and 5. Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. And the crazy thing about all the things the serpent says is the serpent's right. That's the kicker in what the serpent shares there. They didn't die, at least not right away. Their eyes were opened, but not in the way they expected or hoped. We see that in verse 7. And they became like God. We see that in verse 22. But the difference is their capacity to know good and evil took on a strange form. It took on a, a weird form, an ungodlike form. One that left them feeling shame and feeling afraid, hiding and blaming. And that's when they're in the presence of perfect love. They exhibited all these qualities. When God walks in the garden, these were the qualities that they now expressed. So they didn't have the capacity to handle or even harness divine wisdom. They lacked the capacity to be independent, to be self-sufficient. Although I would describe uh, the place where I live, or I wouldn't describe the place where I live, I live over in Des Moines, no one's going to call that the Garden of Eden. I'm sorry, people that live in Des Moines, right? You can say the same thing about your city or town or wherever you live, right? It's not the Garden of Eden. Some of you guys are great gardeners. I've been to some of your houses where it's like, Oh boy, very impressive, but not my yard. If you look at my yard in its present form, you know the curses exist on the ground. <laughs> but Genesis 3 is not just located back some distant time in the past. It's not located back, you know, thousands and thousands of years. Like, oh, we got over that. Us moderns, I don't have any issue with what's going on there. What we read in Genesis 3 sounds a lot like our experience today. It sounds a lot like the way that I operate, and the tendencies that I have, the directions that I get pulled in. Dennis Olson uh, would agree. He observes that Genesis 3 is less about explaining the origin of sin and more about describing the reality of what it is to be human and our mysterious human tendencies continually to rebel against God, to resist the gracious boundaries and limitations that God places around us for our own good and a desire to be like God rather than thankful creatures of God. That's where we live. That's where we find ourselves. And like the human creatures in our story, how easy it is to sidestep prohibitions in our own day to serve our own particular fancy. I was reading a Psychology Today article this past week that was entitled, Are These Rules Worth Breaking? <laughs> Depressing article. 
I'm not sure you can leave your house after you read that article. And the picture painted wasn't one marked by a lot of progress in our modern age. The article noted, morally speaking, the under 40 set is worse than those older. <laughs> Here's what it said. It had a survey that it decided to make that point. About half of the group, again, this is the under 40 set, admitted to cheating on a test at least once or fibbing to save money. Over three quarters had lied to a parent about something significant and about a fifth had stolen something from a store. The kicker here, almost all of them claimed they were satisfied with their overall character. I'll add another kicker here. That survey was from 2012, which means the number of the respondents are now in the over 40 crowd. And I'll add even one more here. I think that folks who are over 40 who filled out that survey may have overlooked some of their shortcomings. My experience tells me as much. We're all kind of in that same boat. We find all kinds of reasons to justify violations of various prohibitions. We talk a good game, try to keep the rules when we can, but it doesn't always work out. So where does that leave us? Where does it leave any of us? The best of us, the worst of us, the in-between of us? Are we to wander aimlessly for the remainder of our days, find ourselves east of Eden, traversing a deadly landscape? Or maybe we wield our power to carve out our own piece of paradise and attempt to rebuild our own version of the garden in our image. There was a quote circulating this past week on Facebook uh, that is advertising a conversation between Brene Brown and Richard Rohr. Did you see this quote? Did anybody see this advertisement? I think it serves as a helpful reminder to us. It's from Richard Rohr. It's from the conversation. It says, The people who know God well, mystics, hermits, prayerful people, those who risk everything to find God, always meet a lover, not a dictator. They always meet a lover, not a dictator. Yes, in Genesis 3, there's a prohibition that's given. And yes, Death is identified as the consequence of the violation. But death doesn't come immediately. God doesn't strike them dead. So we have to rethink what exactly God said the consequence would be here. And victory, of course, is identified even amidst the curses. We see that there will be victory over this serpent in this struggle between man and snake. But even more, God clothes them before he sends them out into the wilderness. The Lord God, that covenant God, is love. We know as much in Scripture. We make a grave error when we overlook that capacity. When I read through Scripture, there's several things that remind me, and I offer them here in closing as we consider what our lot looks like and what the days ahead for us in our own lives look there was an audience in Revelation that was seen as being neither hot nor cold. Nothing to be spewed out of their mouth. What are the words that are offered to that crowd from Jesus? Listen, I am staying at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. God's desire is to have a meal with you, to welcome you back into fellowship, to not just have a fast food encounter, not to grab it to go, but to sit with you and make home with you and to be close to you. In John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, 
Oftentimes we try to lay claim to eternal life as something off in the distance, something that I'm going to enjoy in the afterlife. But John 17 speaks of something different. It says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That there's something in being in a relationship with God that is the essence of what eternal life is. That satisfaction, that new life, that transformation that we can know only in God comes in a particular way of relating, of being known by God and being in close fellowship with the triune God of grace. And then John 14, 23. Jesus says, Those who love me will keep my word. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Friends, as we start out this series in which we look at a number of encounters and meals, we started off with a meal here that was done in isolation, a stolen meal, so to speak, one where we decide to go and eat alone, to brave it ourselves and make a way for ourselves independent of the God of grace, the God who loves us, our creator, our sustainer, the one who gives us life. But yet the story of Scripture goes on with meal after meal where God once more wishes to dine with you, to eat with you, to welcome you at a table that you might enjoy that kind of life, a life of belonging, a life of being nourished, a life of being strengthened in faith and resolve today and every day of our lives. Maybe so for each one of us in this age, in our generation.